Amen. I'd love for you to take the Word of God and turn to Philippians chapter 2 this morning. Philippians chapter number 2. We'll pick up with our exposition that we've began months ago and ended off last week with verse number 8. We'll pick up verses 9 through 11 this morning. What a joy it is to bring to you this text. Um, Just jokingly, Brother Robert told me a couple of weeks ago, he said, this is my favorite text. Do not mess it up. (laughs) (laughs) Of course, he was just teasing and poking, um, but there is a certain reality um, that this text is beyond us. You know, we are... um, knee-deep over our heads in the glories of Christ. And there is a reality in which I don't know that any man can do this justice. That's really the reality of all Scripture, the reality of all texts. And that's really part of the glory of Jesus Christ, that He takes finite men, finite women, and does infinite things with them. He takes the earthly and does heavenly, and that His Spirit this morning, we trust, will take our finite attempt, fallible attempt, and do infinite and infallible things with it as we seek to learn and grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ, and that he'll take this text and exalt it in our hearts and use it to magnify the name of Christ, and that's our prayer. Um, If you're willing and able, we'll stand out of reverence for the reading of God's Word, and to get the entire thought, we'll pick up in verse number 5 and read through verse number 11 of Philippians chapter number 2. Philippians chapter 2 and verse number 5, the Apostle Paul writes by the Spirit of God, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, He humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. And this will be our passage this morning. Therefore God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Let us pray. Again, Father, we come to you just to praise you for the inherent character that you have. Father, we revel in the material things, there's no doubt, as we know that these are just concrete blessings that you place upon our lives. Father, we thank you for the privilege it is to gather together as God's people this morning on the Lord's Day. I'm seeking to honor you. We know that this is only a possibility, Father, because of your Son, Jesus Christ. So, Father, if we have anything to boast in this morning, it's Him and Him alone. Father, we know that only because His body was rent and that the veil was torn, and now we have freedom and access into the very throne room of grace. So let us come this morning, Father, boldly. We know that Your Son walks among the candlesticks. We know that His presence is among us, Father. And we do pray that He would manifest Himself in a real way, Father, through the preaching of Your Word, through the singing of songs, Father, through the fellowship of the saints, through the prayers of God's people, and just through um, all of the things that we engage in this morning. Father, we know that it's more than just a road exercise. We know that it's more, Father, than just a mechanical thing. And I pray that You remind us this morning of that, that our hearts might engage this morning with the Spirit of God, and that our hearts might be engaged by the Word of God. 
and that we truly may hear from heaven this morning and that you would take the very words of life, the gospel of Jesus Christ, his person, nature, and character, Father, and make them alive to us who are believers once again. And if there is a dead man or a dead woman here in, uh, apart from Christ, Father, may you use the word this morning to make them alive. Father, we beg you and implore you to do this because we know that it is outside of our hands. We need the grace of God this morning. So, Father, would you pour it out upon us lavishly and may we receive it with the utmost joy, whatever form it may come in. So, Father, we commend the next hour to you and pray that you will do with it as you please. Father, help us to be faithful to the text, not only in the giving, but in the receiving, and use it for eternal things. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. Thank you so much for standing. As I mentioned, we carry on with our exposition of Philippians chapter number 2. We began some months ago in Philippians 1.1, and now we find ourselves here this morning picking up in chapter 2 and verse number 9. Just for a quick review, you may remember that this is a real letter. I keep saying that for a reason. Because what we can look at it like is somewhat of a theological treatise or an academic work, but truly the Apostle Paul has uh, enveloped in his heart a love, a pastoral heart uh, for the church here at Philippi. And under true circumstances, God's providence, but also his supernatural work, um, he provokes the heart of the Apostle Paul to write to these people whom are near and dear to his heart. Um, again, possibly the most affectionate letter out of all the letters of the Apostle Paul. Paul finds himself imprisoned, and Epaphroditus comes from the place called Philippi, a church that the Apostle Paul was instrumental in Acts chapter number 16 um, in planting. Through the preaching of the gospel there, he and the men of God uh, planted this church, and it has maintained a ministry of the Apostle Paul, and that's clear. As Epaphroditus comes to minister to the Apostle while he's in a Roman jail, uh, chained to a Roman guard, and the Apostle utilizes Epaphroditus to be a blessing once again to the church at Philippi, and that's the letter before us. His introduction takes up from one one to one twenty six, and in verse number 27 of chapter 1, he takes up instruction... We may actually argue that verse number 27, that initial portion, um, could be the very thesis statement of the entire letter, at least the instruction. He begins there with the first command of the letter, and he writes these words, only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ. And from that phrase on, this is just an exposition, in some sense, of that verse. Paul wants to help us to understand how to live out a life worthy of the gospel. In other words, when the gospel permeates a heart, an individual, there is a certain type of work that is done. That eternal life is not only a quantitative life in the sense of um, living forever, but it is a qualitative life. Eternal life is a certain type of life purchased by Jesus Christ. And we looked at that all throughout the New Testament. It is consistent among the apostolic writers in Christ Himself that that type of life is a holy life. Um, it is a type of life that Jesus Christ lived, that He purchased and extended to us a, a righteousness, not our own, that will not only carry us into heaven, 
but should influence every aspect of our Christian life. Every facet of our lives, every facet of the lives at Philippi should be changed by the power of the gospel. Now, that's not always clear to us as individuals where we need to be changed and transformed, but it is nevertheless true. As a believer, much of the transforming work we know happens, all of the work that happens in our lives happens through the Spirit, um, but much of it by according to the Word of God, and thus it's imperative that we immerse ourselves in that Word. It is through the Word that our lives are transformed by the renewing of our minds, and this was true at Philippi. Thus Paul instructs. Paul sees that they are on this process called sanctification, and they need the Word of God. Thus Paul brings it to them. So Paul instructs them, and he instructs them particularly in regard to what the gospel-centered life looks like. Paul knows, according to Philippians 1, 27 through 30, that they have begun because of their gospel conversion and their gospel confession. They have begun to experience opposition and persecution in a Roman world because of their commitment to Christ. And living in a manner worthy of the gospel in those days as well as today means standing firm in the face of opposition. And continuing to defend the, and preach the gospel in light of our adversaries. And that's true in every age. Thus Paul instructs them. And he says in order to do that. In chapter 2 and verse number 1. You will have to be unified. An army can't hold the ground. Nor can it advance against the opposition. In a way that has eternal consequences. Without fighting as a unit. Thus he preaches and instructs not only individuals but us and Philippi as a church. So in chapter 2, verse 1, Paul picks up unity as his primary concern for the church at Philippi, and subsequently us as well. To experience this unity, he'll go on to say, God's people must have a gospel-centered, gospel-saturated, and gospel-directed humility. The only way they'll be unified, verse number 3, is if they have this mind in them that, is, that nothing is done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind. They are to esteem each other better than they esteem themselves. They are to look out not only for their own interests, but also for the interests of others. That the gospel gives us a preeminent love for Christ. And that service to Christ and that love to Christ will manifest itself in a love for the brethren. And in a humble life, in action, practically, one to another. And Paul's instruct, instructing them. And in essence, in verse 1 and 2, he gives these evidences of salvation in them. And he says, if these things are true, and, and, and in some sense he's saying, if you're truly converted in these spirit-wrought graces... Um, these, these, these treasures of Christ that He's purchased on your behalf, if they exist in you, consolation in Christ, comfort in love, fellowship in the Spirit, any affection and mercy, if that's present in your life, fulfill my joy by being like-minded. Um, be, have the same love, be of this one mind, this one accord, this full body, this healthy unit that is battling against opposition, and it's doing it primarily by humility of heart as it yields itself one to another within that body for the single purpose of taking the gospel to the nations. And that's the idea. Then you might say, what mind? In verse number 5, he tells us what mind, and he sets forth um, our, a supreme example, our supreme example, for what that humility looks like. 
And he says in verse number five, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. To experience that unity, God's people again must have a gospel saturated and directed humility. Thus, in verse five, Paul gives us the supreme example of that humility in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And he sets before the picture that is worth more than a billion words. That continues, I hope, to affect our hearts and lives even to this day. We're called to be like Christ in the form of His principled, humble service. And now we come to verses 9-11 through 11 in which the Apostle springboards off of what we've termed, most, and Christians have throughout the ages, it's not a new term, but the humiliation of Christ. It's condescension and celebrates the glory of Christ's exaltation. And that's what I want to focus in on this morning. To celebrate the glory of the exaltation. That the sadness and sorrow of Good Friday gives way in totality to the joy and the gladness of Resurrection Day. The day in which we gather on this day is a commemoration and a memorial of that day. Every day that we gather on the Lord's Day, the first day of the week, the Sunday, and the, ap- the, the apostolic example is they begin to gather um, on this day. Why? Because this was the day of the week in which our Lord Jesus Christ rises from the grave. He is exalted to a status um, in which He did not have in those 33 years of life. That I think it's important this morning, imperative even. For us to not only look at humility and the mind that we have in Christ Jesus, um, that we're not only to take His humiliation, which teaches us how to live in humble service, but we are to have the proper object before us, um, which is the reward of Christ, the Father, the Spirit. That we are to aim to something as Christ did. That Christ in His humiliation was not just... Um, was not just abstractly, um, in a vacuum, performing a humble service. But I hope what, what we see this morning is that actually Jesus Christ was striving for something in His obedience to the Father. And the Father rewards the Son with treasures eternal in His exaltation and that we can learn too from that, that we are to strive in this life, in our humble service to, in obedience to God, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, to exalt Christ and ever have that reward as Paul strived in the race for the goal that was set before him and encourages us to as well that there are certain things that we are to strive for. And the way to attain that is through humble service. To God in obedience. So it's not only Christ's humiliation that teaches us how to live in humble service one to another, but even Christ's exaltation, I hope, will prove to serve as an example of what it means to live a life worthy of the gospel. Worthy of the gospel. So three points this morning. Number one, the basis of Christ's exaltation. We'll look at the basis of Christ's exaltation in chapter 2 and verse number 9. What's the basis of Christ's exaltation? His humiliation, his humble service, his obedience, his sacrifice, not only in life, but also in death. Uh, number two, the reality of Christ's exaltation. Um, and we'll look just briefly, surface level, at Christ's resurrection, his ascension, and his second coming. 
We'll just highlight those. There's no way we can go in depth this morning on those. But Christ's exaltation, the reality of it, manifests itself in God the Father raising the Son. Not only raising the Son from death, but raising the Son to the right hand of God the Father and giving Him a throne and giving Him dominion over every nation, tribe, and tongue, which will manifest itself in the proclamation of the gospel and Jesus Christ receiving that reward of His sufferings. And His exaltation will take final um, manifestation in His second coming. We're to live in light of that exaltation. That coming again, the physical bodily return to this earth. We are to live in light of that. And that will be the final manifestation of His dominion over all the earth. And that's in 2, 9, and B. And then finally, we will see the purpose for Christ's exaltation. So why was He? And you may think that's kind of the question of the first (laughs) number one. but, But the number one will be, why was He exalted? What's the cause of His exaltation? Number two, what was His exaltation? How was He exalted in His resurrection, His ascension, and His second coming? And number three, you could look at it, to what end? To what end? And just to let the cat out of the bag, it's for universal confession, universal worship. It is for universal submission that every knee would bow and that every tongue would confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. So number one, the basis this morning of Christ's exaltation. Or we might ask, why did God the Father exalt the Son to the place of the right hand? And we see in verse number 9a, Therefore, God also has highly exalted Him. And I want to hone in on that word, that single word, therefore. seems like an insignificant word. But if you have an NAS, it will actually say, for this reason. For this reason. Or if you have a CSB, it will say, for this reason. God highly exalted Him. That the therefore this morning is there for the reason or purpose to link Christ's humble life of service and obedience even to the point of death to His exaltation. In other words, the cause this morning The reason that the Father exalts the Son in His humanity is because of Christ's perfect life and faithfulness unto death. It was a reward. Christ's exaltation, the God-man, is rewarded. Why? For His humility. It's a gracious gift of the Father to the Son. For this reason. What reason? Because He was found in the appearance as a man, and as He humbled Himself, He became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross, for this reason, God. So the Father acts in accordance with His Son's faithful obedience. Now, that sounds strange to our ears. Maybe it does, maybe it doesn't. It sounds strange to my ears. Why? Because when we speak of Christ in such a way, it seems odd. Why? Because we think of Him in His pre-incarnate state. We think of Christ as God um, in His divine nature. We think of the resurrection glory. We think of Him now at the right hand of God the Father. But in this portion of Scripture, we must remember that this is the God-man. We think of Him now as utterly divine, but we must remember that Christ, as He is being referenced here, is the God-man humbling Himself wrapped in His deity, wrapped in humanity for the sole purpose of completing the task that the Father sent Him to do. 
that he would take on humanity to become in all points like we are, that we that he might be the Savior and Lord of all mankind. Paul refers to Christ in other places as the second Adam or as the last Adam to contrast him with the first Adam. One commentator, Ralph Martin, writes, he says, quote, those who see as a background here the Genesis story. So he's saying, read this in light of Genesis and the first Adam. He says, those who see as a background here the Genesis story and the temptation presented to Adam to, quote, be like God. Draw the parallel between the first and the last Adam. The former senselessly sought to grasp at equality with God. And through pride and disobedience lost the glorious image of his maker. The latter, speaking of Christ, chose to tread the pathway of lowly obedience in order to be exalted by God as Lord, verses 9 and 10. To be placed on an equality which he did not have previously, those 33 years, because it is only by the suffering of death that he is crowned with glory and honor, Hebrews 2, 9. He goes on later speaking of Adam and Christ, and he says these words, The act of robbery was attempted as Adam, the Son of God, and made little lower than God, asserted himself to be as God, to be Lord in his own right and independently of God as Maker. But he failed in this aspiration. Speaking of Adam, he failed. He tried to be equal with God. He tried to be like God, right? What was the, um, the, the, the positive command in the Garden of Eden? And what was his failure? The, 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 the serpent comes and says, he doesn't want you to do that. And this is just a summary um, or paraphrase. He doesn't want you to do it. Why? Because he knows that you'll be like God. And he tries to rob God of equality. He tries to be like God in doing so, in that pride, grasping for equality with God, robbing God, trying to be equal with God. What happens? He is humbled in his sinful nature, but not Christ. He goes on to say, the eternal Son of God, however, faced with a parallel temptation, renounced what was by his right and could actually have become his possession by the seizure of it, equality with God, and chosen instead the way of obedient suffering as the pathway to his lordship. The circumstances of this tremendous decision are described in the verses which follow. End quote. Christ, the last Adam, succeeds where Adam fails. Not only in one act, but in 33 years of life. And this is phenomenal. And not only does he keep the external act expected of a man, but he keeps it internally. You know? We think about him not only as the second Adam, but as the true Israel. You know? 613 laws in which he would fully um, coalesce with being an ethnic Jew. But that doesn't pale in comparison to, to, to the reality that for 33 years of life as the second Adam, the last Adam, that he fulfills everything externally as Adam would, but internally. I mean, think about it. Not only were his hands completely clean for 33 years before the world, but his heart was 100% pure before the Father. Never a moment of unbridled anger. Never a lustful thought. Never a time in which he did not delight in the Father or love Him less than with all his mind, with all his soul, and with all his strength. 
And thus he completes the task that Adam could not. He is um, the Israel that Israel would not and could not be. Where they fail in the law out of, a, out of a prideful attitude. To be gods themselves or to be like God or equal with God. Jesus Christ enters into the world in humble service. Man uh, wrapping his deity, veiling the glory. Uh, setting aside the rights and the majesty. Taking upon him humility for 33 years even to the death of the cross. Why? Because the Father sent him. But this, this task is, yes, we could say, well, I thought it was for the love of mankind, yes, but it's not so much rooted in the love of mankind as it, I think it is um, at least paralleled or in correlation with, with the task that the Father had given him. This task is not so much rooted in his relationship with us, we are the fruit of it. But this task is more rooted in his relationship with the Father, the, 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 the triune God. Um, that there was an arrangement, as I mentioned somewhat briefly last week. Even before the heavens were created or time and existence was made, that what we see within, contained within the Scriptures is an arrangement um, between, in the midst of the Godhead, um, even before time began. It's in Titus chapter number 1, and you don't necessarily have to turn there, I'm just going to read a verse or two. Titus 1.1, 1, 1, Paul, a bondservant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, according to the faith of God's elect, the and the acknowledgement of the truth which accords with godliness. In hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised before time began. He promised the hope of eternal life when before time began. For you were created before I was created, before this ball was put into motion, before Adam was given a positive law in the garden, before the moral law was shaped in his heart. Something happened in the Godhead before the world ever began. If you were to read Isaiah chapters 40s and 50s and 60s, you would see much of that conversation between God the Father and God the Son. And it's not to say that they actually had a sit-down or a round-table discussion necessarily before, but he is speaking in language that we can understand that there was an arrangement made before the ages began between the Father, the Son, and the Spirit that the Father would send the Son and that the Son would willfully go and that He would make the decision in and of Himself to die for a people in obedience and subjection and submission to the Father. And as a result of that, the Father would reward the Son because of His obedience with a people out of every nation, tribe, and tongue, and it would manifest itself in resurrection and exaltation, even unto the end. If you want those verses, I would encourage you to read Isaiah 42. And I'll just read that for you now. Isaiah 42, in verse number 1, you read these words, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my elect one in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him, Get this phrase. He will bring forth justice to the Gentiles. He will not cry out nor raise his voice. Nor cause his voice to be heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break. And a smoking flax he will not quench. He will bring forth justice for truth. He will not fail nor be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth. And the coastlands shall wait for his law. 
Thus says God the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread forth the earth, that which comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it, and spirit to those who walk on it. I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness. And I will hold your hand, and I'll keep you, and give you as a covenant to the people, as a light to the Gentiles. This is a conversation between the Father and the Son. He says, the Father says, I, I the Lord, have called you in righteousness. I will keep you. I will hold your hand. I will give you as a covenant to the people, as a light to the Gentiles. Why? To open the blind eyes, verse 7 says. To bring out prisoners from the prison. Those who sit in darkness from the prison house. I am the Lord. That is my name and my glory. I will not give another. What you see is this interaction. Not only here, but in Isaiah 48 in verses 8 and 9, in Isaiah 50, in verses 4 through 9, where we see the servant, I think it's Christ there, speak in response to the Father. That we see this interaction in Isaiah 61, in verses 1 and 2. We see these words. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me. And this is Christ speaking here. To preach good tidings to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of the vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to console those who mourn in Zion. In Luke chapter 4 and verse number 17, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ Himself quotes and applies that very passage to Himself. In Luke 4.17, He says, And He was handed the book of the prophet Isaiah. And when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. So all bore witness to him and marveled. That what you see when you study the Old Testament as well as the New is that the Father sends the Son on mission. John is replete in his, um, in his account of this. In John 17, 4, I have finished the work which you have given me to do. John 17, 8, me, as you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. And we could just again and again repeat those same verses. That the Father obligates the Son to complete a mission and the Father appoints the Son to be the federal head, the representative. Romans chapter number 5 of all those who would believe. All those who would believe. John 10 and verse 17, For this reason the Father loves me. This charge, He says, I have received from the Father. The Father gave me charge. My sheep hear my voice. I give them eternal life. And my Father who has given to me is greater than all. Some sense he's saying, I'll gather my people to myself. Who are they? They are the ones that the Father has promised to me. He makes, the Father makes the Son a surety for the people of God. In Hebrews chapter number 7. You can turn there if you like. Hebrews chapter number 7. As he's, as the author of Hebrews is somewhat contrasting the old covenant and the new covenant. In the midst of it, he's speaking particularly of Christ. And in verse number 20, he says these words, And it's inasmuch as he was not made a priest without an oath, for they have become priests without an oath, but he with an oath, by him who said to him, this is God the Father speaking of the Son, the Lord is sworn and will not relent. You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. 
By so much more, Jesus has become a surety of a better covenant. Boys and girls, you can write underline or write in there a surety. You say, what is a surety? A surety is one who voluntarily enters into a compact or a covenant on behalf of another. It is one who voluntarily enters into a compact or a covenant on behalf of another. What we see is that the father required the son to become a voluntary or he, he, he placed upon him the task in which he voluntarily, uh, the son voluntarily receives and takes upon himself to covenant on behalf of a people that were not himself. This surety must take upon himself all the legal obligations of those he represents. These people the father gave the son which he gave in a foreseen sinful condition. And the son must therefore do everything that they are not able to do, but also undo all the bad things that they have done. And this is exactly what we see in Christ. Christ comes to forgive sins, but He also comes to be the man that Adam could not be and to be the Israel that they would not be because of disobedience and fulfilling all of those commands. He, he dies upon the cross to forgive the sins of all those He represents and to attribute to them a righteousness that is not their own. And He can do that. Why? Because He fulfilled the law in all points on their behalf. Jesus Christ enters humbly into the world, takes upon Himself human form, becomes a surety for all of these people. Why? Because the Father sent Him. That's part of the obedience here in Philippians chapter number 2. It's not just that He obeyed unto death, it is that He obeyed in every point of His life. For 33 years, He keeps the whole law of God. He keeps the moral law of God. He keeps the positive precepts. And in doing so, when we put our faith and repentance in Jesus Christ, repent of our sins and put our faith in Christ, we have that righteousness which He accrued on our accounts. He gives us His life. That's why we can stand before God the Father one day and we can stand sure and full and free and righteous. Why? Because of the righteousness that He gives. Because He um, accrued it on our accounts. The Father appoints the Son. The Father sends the Son. And the Father promises the Son. It's prophet, priest, and king. The Father commits Himself to the Son. To go with the Son. To give Him the Spirit. And to pour out His Spirit upon Him. He says, my Spirit will uphold Him. But also, the, the point that we're getting to in this is that the Father promises a reward to the Son. He promises the Son that as a result of His obedience and His humility, that He will heap treasures upon the Son um, that are eternal, particularly a people, for Himself. In Psalm chapter number 16 and verse number 10, which is a messianic psalm, you'll read these words. This is Christ speaking. He says, For you will not leave my soul in Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to see a corruption. The apostles in Acts apply that verse to Christ in Acts chapter 13 and verse number 35. In Isaiah chapter number 53, you remember Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53 is that um, paramount passage in which our Lord is bruised for our iniquities. But I think what is often left to the side it was the glorious reality of the faithfulness of the Son. 
That he will be rewarded because of his obedience and his humble service. Thus he begins in areas like verse 3. He's despised and rejected of men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised. Surely he's borne our griefs. He's carried our sorrows. He's esteemed that we've esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. And it goes on to, 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 to recount the, the gruesome death of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. I mean, it is a prophetic passage, a messianic servant song of Isaiah. But in verse number 10, let us not forget that it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He put, he was put to grief. When you make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days. And the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his, in his hand. He shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many. For he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the great. Who? The Christ. And he shall divide the spoil with the strong. He's going to share with his people the rewards that the Father has poured out upon him. And that's why we have all the privileges and blessings in Christ. Because they were given to us by the Father through the Son. Why? Because he has poured out his soul unto death. And he was numbered with the transgressors. transgressors, And he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Psalm chapter number 22 is another glorious passage, a messianic psalm in which we read words like verse number 1, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Quoted by our Savior there on the cross. Why are you so far from helping me and from the words of my groaning? You read that, you talk about the, 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 his, 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 his physical body being waxing old and being beaten. He says in verse 14, I'm poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax and it's melted within me. My strength is dried up like a pot's earth. How could you go forth? Like who can endure that? Well, he's God, yes, but he's man. And the Father commits himself by the Spirit to uphold him. Thus, all throughout the crucifixion, what you read is of Christ leaning on the Father, going to the Father, leaning upon the Spirit. Why? To complete the task that the Father had given Him to do. And in verse number 22, you read these words. Verse 21, actually. The second portion of Psalm 22. Let's read the whole thing. Save me from the lion's mouth and from the horns of the wild oxen. You have answered me. He says, and he changes there. I don't know why the, the, the verse divisions are the way that they are. It seems like that should have been the beginning of verse number 22, but I'm not a wise guy, and I'm not, I'm not a, 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 a great Hebrew scholar either or, or anything. But it seems like that thought changes right there. You have answered me. I called out to you, and you have answered me. Verse 22, I will declare your name to my brethren. In the midst of the assembly, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise Him. All you descendants of Jacob, glorify Him and fear Him. All you offspring of Israel. For He has not despised nor abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, nor has He hidden him His face from Him. But when He cried to Him, He heard. My praise shall be of you in the great assembly. I will pay my vows before those who fear Him. The poor shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek Him will praise the Lord. Let your heart live forever. Verse 27, And all the ends of the world shall remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For the kingdom is the Lord's and He rules over the nations. 
All the prosperous of the earth shall eat and worship. All those who go down to the dust shall bow before him. Even those who cannot keep himself alive. A posterity, a seed shall serve him. It will be recounted of the Lord to the next generation. They will come and declare his righteous to the people, his righteousness to a people who will be born that he has done this. That Jesus Christ will enter into the world. He will live a life of obedience. He will suffer even unto death. And as a result of that, the Father and the power of the Spirit will uphold the Son and pour out treasures upon the Son, particularly a people out of every nation, tribe, and tongue in which the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And it will that posterity will go even in a remnant form unto those people who were not born. And you will have fathers and mothers and pastors and preachers and, and people all throughout the nations converted by Christ who will say to one another, God has done this. The Lord has prevailed. Standing in the midst of all of the adversaries and the opposition of the world, they will not be able to thwart the one who is seated at the right hand of God the Father, ever ruling and reigning over and in His people. Why? Because of the obedience of the Son, His, His humble service. The Father exalts Him highly exalts Him as a reward of His life and His sufferings and His humility. The Son perfectly fulfills and keeps the obligations laid upon Him. Therefore, Psalm, uh, Philippians chapter number 2, the reality of His exaltation. And this won't take long because in large part I've already discussed a lot of it. But number 2, the reality of His exaltation. Or we might say, how was He exalted? How was Christ exalted? He was highly exalted. How was He exalted? He was highly exalted. I love Paul. Paul could care less about grammar. He just makes his own words up. <laughs> in, in Philippians chapter 2, as well as many other places, um, what you find is a word that is utilized here nowhere else in the New Testament and can't be found in Greek secular literature. Why? Because Paul is at a loss for words. And Paul wants to explain the exaltation of the Lord in such a way that separates it from common exaltation of kings and lords and sovereigns over this earth. So what he says in verse number 9 is, Therefore, as this re for this reason, because of His humble obedience, the Father pours out treasures upon the Son and He highly exalts Him. Highly exalted is just one word in the original that is a compound word in which it can literally be translated for us today to understand super exalted. Paul takes two words and he just lumps them together because one word is not enough. Common Greek doesn't explain the exaltation in the way that he wants. So in the uniqueness of the Apostle Paul, he explains it to where he says, this is literally Christ the Father exalts Christ to, he super exalts Him. He exalts Him above and beyond anyone else and anything that could be exalted. He literally, kids, it means, exalt means to lift up. And not only does Paul use here exalt and lifting up, but super lifting up. He exalts Him above the heavens. The highest position in all the world, in all the generations, in all of eternity, Christ the God-man is raised from the dead and exalted in a way that man has never been before. Yes, other men have been resurrected, but they have not been exalted like this. 
Throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament, you will find men and women return from the dead. And as miraculous as that is, it's not the same as our Lord being raised from the dead by the power of the Spirit according to His own power. And the Father exalts the God-man, Jesus Christ, the Anointed One, the prophet, priest, and king of all humanity, and gives Him a dominion over all the earth. It is the highest place in all the land. Not only the land, in all the heavens. And in all eternity. And the text says that He bestows it upon Him. You may have a translation that literally says he, it's, it's a charizomai. It's, it's where we get our word charis from, which means grace. When you go and you talk about the grace gifts, the spiritual gifts given to man, they are grace gifts. It's the same word. It's a, it's a form of that word that the Father graciously gives the Son because of His obedience in all forms as Adam and Israel for a people, pours out an abundant and a gracious blessing upon Christ's head, crowns Him with glory that He had prayed for in John 17.5, returns that even in a greater fashion if that could be possible. So as a reward for Christ's humility-driven obedience, the Father graciously, freely gives the Son a name above all names. A name above all names. The reality of His... Um, and it's a name beyond any other name. Hebrews 1, 3, and 4, who Christ being the brightness of His glory, the express image of His person, and upholding all things by the word of His power, when He had made by Himself purged our sin, and sat down at the right hand on the maj- of majesty on high, having become uh, such better than the angels, as He has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. He inherited it through the Father because of His obedience and attained a more excellent name than all principalities, power, spiritual beings in earthly and heavenly places. John Calvin writes, quote, The meaning, therefore, is that supreme power was given to Christ and He was placed in the highest rank of honor so that there is no dignity found either in heaven or on earth that is equal to His. What it, how was that manifested quickly? In the resurrection, in the ascension, and will be in the second coming. In the resurrection, and we've already discussed this, God the Father declared that the Son was God from all eternity, the Messiah, the prophet, priest, and king, who would come and take uh, the sins of His people, and would be declared the Son of God by the resurrection of the dead. Romans chapter 1 and verse number 4, Paul leads out with this. He says, and declared, speaking of Christ, to be the Son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. It's not to say that He became anything that He was not before in His divine nature, but as the God-man, His humanity was exalted out of the obedience and that three days later, after Rome, uh, the, the, the apostate Israel, and, the, and Satan himself, brings our Lord to His death. Um, according to God's providential means. But Jesus Christ lays His life down wide to three days later, take it up again. And the Father declares um, to, to the world, to you and to me, to Philippi, and to all those throughout every generation, that this is the Son of God, and that He acknowledged that the sacrifice was acceptable by raising Him from the dead. Number two, He was exalted in His ascension. I think this is probably one of those points that is often um, understated, not given enough attention to. We give a whole day to Easter and Christmas. I think we need an ascension day. Fifty days after. I think we just need to 
to, to, to exalt our Lord because He's seated at the right hand of God the Father. He just didn't come out of the grave, but the Father exalted Him 40 days later and put Him at the right hand of God the Father. One of the most quoted acts all throughout the New Testament, quoted from the Psalms and Isaiah of this act that God the Father would do as He ascends to the, to, to the, to the throne room of God and, and is ever seating for His Saints, and we read that all throughout the Scriptures. We read that at that moment the authority was given to Him. We read in Daniel, and I would argue Daniel chapter number 7, that as the Son goes to the right hand of the Father and ascends to the Ancient of Days, a kingdom is given to Him out of every nation, tribe, and tongue, and He has full authority, Matthew chapter 28, and that's why He can say, I have all authority was given to Me in heaven and on earth. Go ye therefore... Why? Because the purchase was complete. The nations were His. Therefore, men go with full authority, disciple those nations, preach the Gospel, teach them whatsoever I have commanded you. The veil has been rent. Um, the, the, the Satan has been defeated in some form. Now the light can go to the nations where it was restricted to the Jews only. Now take it everywhere you go. Why? Because I have authority. And it's been given to me by the Father. And in ten days after I sin, the promise of the Spirit will be poured out and you will be enabled to go into all the world and preach the Gospel and it will not be hindered by the blindness of Satan no more. So go therefore, go with confidence. You know why we have, can have confidence when we go out to the abortion clinic or we go to Piney Flats to the flea market or you're, 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 you're evangelizing your children or you're going to the nations and to, to unreached people groups and you're sliding in um, under the fence in Muslim dominated areas. You know why you can go with a smile on your face? Because Jesus Christ reigns and rules and has full authority at the right hand of God the Father. And we should. We should not go with a timidness, <coughs> but with a boldness. Why? Because Christ was exalted. And He has dominion. And He will receive the reward of His suffering. And that is a people out of every nation, tribe, and tongue. Number three is second coming. And we see that here manifested in this text. That His exaltation will take its final form and manifestation um, in the second coming, when he brings before him every, not only nation, tribe, and tongue, but every individual that's ever lived in this world, this life, every soul will come before him, and he will render it according each one to his works. Men will be found either in Christ or not. They will be rewarded because of Christ's righteousness in and through them, or they will be rewarded according to their rebellion. 2 Thessalonians 1 verse 7 and 2 Thessalonians 1 verse 10, you see the punishment of the wicked as well as the blessing of the righteous. And I'll leave you with that. And we are to live as believers in light of that not only Christ's birth, His incarnation, not only His death, but His resurrection and His ascension. We are being led. We are being um, used. We are being... all of it Because all of these things take have taken place in time and succession according to the prophets of old. Um, and we have much to exalt Christ in this day because He's at the right hand of God the Father. Number three, the purpose of His exaltation. Or why did God the Father do this? He did it as a, causally. He did it because of Christ's obedience. 
But he raised Christ to the right hand of God the Father and gave him a name above every name. Why? So that at the name of Jesus, every knee would bow and every tongue would confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Why did he do it? The big why. Why? Because God desires in Christ every person, every soul, every sentient being, angels, everyone to, to bow before him. Universal submission, universal worship. He's exalted to the right hand of God the Father. Why? So that every, every person, every, every angel, every demon, every thing on one day, at least on one day, and throughout all eternity, will universally worship Him. And that's why He says in verse 10, that, so that. It's, it's a purpose statement. Um, he's given Him a name which is above every name. He's highly super exalted Him. Why? So that. That the reason for the exaltation is so that every tongue would confess Jesus Christ is Lord. In every nation, every tribe, every tongue, every generation. And thus, we see that that will happen one day at the second coming. But what name? You might say in honor of that name, every knee will bow. What name? The name of Jesus? It doesn't say the name Jesus. It doesn't say that you'll bow at the name Jesus. But you'll bow at a name of Jesus or a name that belongs to Jesus. Jesus has many names. The Son of God has many names. He has a multiplicity of names. And this name describes who He is. Names in the Near Eastern culture were more, um, more than just ways to distinguish between another person and to be able to delineate one person from another. Um, it, it was, it was uh, it somewhat constituted their being. You know, thus, Jacob, as he's coming out and he's holding the heel of, a, of his brother, he's, the Hebrew name actually literally means that, which is, a, an, a, which is a, a, a metaphor for a supplanter, a deceiver, which he lives up to his name you know, later on. The same with these other men. They're named in, in, in Hebrew culture, Near Eastern context. I mean, it, it speaks of something of their being, their character, their nature. And that's the same with God. His name is, is, is speaking of something inherent in Him. So this name that is given to Jesus at the exaltation, what is it? And I think that clearly in the context, in the original language, it's Lord. That the name at which Jesus is given is Lord. Why? To the glory of God the Father. That it is to bring the Father glory as Jesus Christ is exalted as Lord over all the earth. Given dominion over every nation, tribe, and tongue. And a people which will be His people which He will rule in and through the gospel in their hearts. That that's the idea. That this slave who would enter into the world and humble himself would be exalted to the place of Lord, of Lord over all things. The word is kurios. It means servant or it means a sovereign. It means one who rules. This is a direct quotation from Isaiah chapter number 45 and verse number 21. Again, we return to the servant songs. And in 45 and verse number 21, you read these words. Tell them to bring forth your case, yet let them take counsel together. Who has declared this from ancient time? Who has told it from that time? Have I not I the Lord? And there is no other God besides me. A just and a Savior. There is none besides me. Look to me and be saved all you ends of the earth. For I am God and there is no other. I have sworn by myself the word has gone out of my mouth in righteousness and shall not return. 
that to me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall take an oath. He shall say, surely in the Lord I have righteousness and strength. To Him men shall come and all shall be ashamed who are incensed against Him. In the Lord all the descendants of Israel shall be justified and shall glory. And who is speaking here? None other than Yahweh. If you have an English translation or if you have the LSB, it probably says Yahweh there now. Because they translated all of those Jehovah um, uh, words. Uh, the King James, New King James, many of your translations take the, the, the word Jehovah and distinguish it from other uh, words that mean Lord by capitalizing all of them. So in verse number 24, it says, Surely I, the Lord, I have capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. Why? Because the underlying word there that is used is Yahweh, covenant-keeping God. You know who is saying this? It's Yahweh. Paul is quoting in Philippians chapter number 2 that every knee will bow, every tongue will confess who before Yahweh, covenant-keeping God, the God of old. That Jesus Christ here is made equal again with God. As Paul takes this text from Isaiah, who is clearly the Lord, and says every knee will bow, every tongue will confess who? That Jesus Christ is Lord. He's Yahweh. There is coming a day in the future, however long the Lord tarry, in which every nation, tribe, and tongue, and every soul out of it, will stand before the Lord and will bow their knee and confess that Jesus Christ is Jehovah God. He is Yahweh. He is the Lord. Why? To the glory of God the Father. And it will be every person in heaven, believers and angels, on the earth, all those who are alive and remain, and under the earth. Those who have died outside of Christ, and demons that are locked in chains, they will all bow the knee. Take heart today, church, as you go out into a world that is declining and seems to be degrading even as we speak on a political scene, an economic scene, and a whole host of other scenes. Take heart that there is coming a day when justice will prevail. You know how I know? Because He has been highly exalted. That's the purpose. Why did He, why did he live? Why did He die? Why, did he, um, why was He resurrected? Why was He exalted? Why? So that justice may be carried forth throughout all the earth, either in Christ as you believe in Him, or by Christ. Either in the cross, as he, was, as he endured the wrath of God on our behalf, or as, as every man submits to Him on that great and glorious day when they stand before Him. So quickly, just a few lines of application, and we'll be done at the usual time of 12.15. Um... Number one, believers. I would simply say, as we apply this to our hearts, may this reality change our perception of Christ. May this reality transform our thinking on Christ. This morning, as we think of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, the arrangement before time manifested here and now 2,000 years ago, which will have eternal consequences. May it raise our view of God. May we see Him and live in light of this reality. May we live in light of His resurrection. You know, in Romans chapter number 4, in verse number 23, we read these words. 
Now it was not written for his sake alone, but it was imputed to him. But also for us. It shall be imputed to us who believe in him who was, who raised up Jesus, our Lord, from the dead. Who was delivered up because of our offenses and was raised because of our justification. That today as we live in light of the exaltation and the resurrection, we recognize with the Apostle Paul that, 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 that without the resurrection we are the most pitiable people. That it is because of His life that we live. That's the actual um, uh, application that Paul makes in Romans chapter number 6, six and verse number 1. Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? No. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Or do you not know that as many as us were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? And then he goes on to say that if we've been united together in the likeness of His death as well as His resurrection, verse number 5, knowing that our old man was crucified and that we are alive unto God, then, then live as, as you are alive. If we died with Christ, verse 8, we believe that we shall also live with Him. And he goes on to say, so live. Live. As you meditate upon the glory of Christ, His life, His death, His burial, His resurrection, He was raised for our justification that our sins may be forgiven and that we may live according to the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. I tell you today that if you can live with an unbridled sense of sin in your life with no consciousness of the second coming of Christ, you have a low view of Christ and His resurrection. Meditate upon the exaltation. You know what it will do? It will provoke you to glory in the sin that has been forgiven on our behalf and live unto the righteousness that He has purchased for us. That, that it affects not only our justification, but the resurrection, the exaltation should affect our sanctification. And that we should live in light of the ascension. We should live under His Lordship as He's enthroned. We should see Him super exalted, highly above all, all names. We should see Him as Lord over all the earth and Lord over our lives. According to Hebrews, we should remember Him as our great high priest living to ever make intercession for us. We should know that He's there and that He's interceding on our behalf. We should remember as we go out and preach the Gospel that He has been given dominion over every nation, tribe, and tongue and we can preach it with authority. Why? Because He's given it. The Father's given it to the Son and we carry that authority with us as well. It should change the way that we preach the Gospel. As we seek Christ high and holy and lift it up. He deserves the people. He deserves everyone in this room. He deserves everyone outside of that room. Jesus Christ, the Yahweh God, covenant keeping God, the creator of all the souls of this world and in every generation and the savior of all mankind deserves to be worshiped in every inch of this old mud ball. Thus we are to take it with authority and call all men to repent, believing that if Christ be raised from the dead, then they too can be raised from the dead. So let us preach. And let us proclaim because He's worthy. But let us also do with faith knowing that if He's able to, that He's able to save abundantly and even to the uttermost. May this reality change our pursuit of Christ. With just the last few minutes, I just want to, I want to emphasize the point of the apostle here. I don't want to get lost necessarily in all the theology, although that's wonderful. And that's what I've done for the last 55 minutes. Um, but Paul's not writing a theological treatise here. You know what Paul is doing? Paul is writing in such a way, holding and exalting Christ, exemplifying Him such to the point that it would affect their behavior. 
Paul's not writing something that is simply informational. No, Paul's not just dumping data or content upon them. He's illustrating eternal principles that it might stir them to faithfulness. There are those who would argue that in verse 5 through 8, that that mind that is to be in us is there, and then um, verses 9 through 11 exclusively belong to um, Jesus Christ. But I would argue against that. Um, I would argue that this is a biblical principle that you find all throughout scriptures. Um, So what is that biblical principle? That with humility, you will be exalted. That humble service and obedience to God, God promises heavenly exaltation and heavenly treasures. That what we see is that the source of the exaltation is that God is directly attributed to um, bestowing upon Christ reward and treasures. And this is more than just an impersonal principle. This is more than just simple karma. Um, That the reason that humility leads to exaltation is not because what goes around comes around. Um, The reason why selfless sacrifice is rewarded is because God directly watches over it. It is because it is God who blesses. You know why Christ was exalted? Because God blesses obedience. It is, and it is God who curses disobedience. That we might say rightfully, and it is right, that Christ's humility is the reason for His exaltation. But we also may too say that the exaltation and Christ having it ever before Him in His pursuit is the reason for Christ's humility. That He desired... Christ in his life to honor God above all things. And that manifested itself in an obedient, humble life. And that he knew from the promise of the Father that the exaltation would come, that he would pour out a blessing upon him. Thus, he has a heavenly pursuit. And that we too should strive for that exaltation, not for our own pleasure, but for, or the pleasure of men, but for the pleasure of God. You know, Paul is possibly playing on our inherent natural desires here to be exalted. We all want to be exalted. We love it. We want to be lifted up, to have prominence, to have position. But he, and he doesn't say stop desiring to be exalted. And he doesn't do that anywhere. He doesn't say stop desiring glory and honor. But in some sense, he's, he's preaching to us enlarger desires for true exaltation. Exaltation from God, not from men. Deepen our desires for true honor and glory by pursuing um, not the fake thing or the thing that you can create, but the real thing that, in the pleasure of God. That, 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 that over and over throughout the, the New Testament, Paul is laying before us, John the Apostle in, 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 in Revelation 2 and 3, and, and the rest of Revelation is, is laying before us the promise of rewards. And that we are to run after that. But not in selfish pleasure. In honor of God because we desire the most glorious thing and that is Christ. John Calvin again says, "For from the most abject condition, Christ um, uh, was exalted to the highest elevation. Everyone therefore that humbles himself will be in like manner exalted. Just like our Savior. Who would, who would now, he goes on to say, who would now be reluctant to exercise humility by means of which the glory of the heavenly kingdom is attained? You know? He's saying, pursue the right things. And to pursue humility, make the decision, the judgment, as Christ did in Philippians chapter number 2. Make that judgment, why? In honor of Christ. For the exaltation. 
for the right thing, that you may have Him and receive Him, that glory, that crown of righteousness. And this is a biblical principle. You say, where do you find that at? All throughout the New Testament, but particular Hebrews. Hebrews chapter number 11 and verse number 6. You know what you read? You read that without faith it is impossible to please Him. For he who comes to God must believe that He is. We know that. And that what? And that He is a rewarder of those who diligently seek Him. That you are to seek after Him. That God rewards obedience. And that part of our faith is actually a pursuit of that, 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 who, that who He is. But also the reality that we're to diligently to pursue Him. That He is a rewarder of those who diligently seek Him. You say, that makes me a little uncomfortable. It seems like pleasure seeking. And yes, that's fine as long as your pleasure is in Christ. I'm saying this morning that, that, that if, you are, if you are under the Word and that you are living by the power of the Spirit and He is conforming your will and giving you a, 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 a love for Christ and your utmost joy is in Him, then yes, pursue that joy because that joy is found in Christ. And seek to have more of Him and to honor Him. That's exactly what the saints of old did. That's what Moses did in Hebrews 11.25. Goes on to see that application. Hebrews eleven twenty five. Who chose to suffer affliction with the people of God rather than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches and the treasures in, than the treasures in Egypt, for he looked to the reward. Moses, what kept you going? Not the fleeting pleasures of this world, but the reward that was come, because I found a greater riches in Christ. That, the, that His humility was governed by His pursuit of exaltation. Christ was working towards something, not aimlessly. He knew that the promise of the Father was exaltation and the pouring out of the Spirit and a name above every name. And thus He pursued it. And we too should pursue Christ. Why? Because it will govern our humble service as we are, as we are um, wrestling around with the, the, the troubles of sin and the pleasures of this world. We should look at it as we glory in Christ and say, I, I seek a greater pleasure and a greater treasure and that is to be found in Christ. That to have a large picture of Christ and His exaltation um, will steer and govern our humility. It will actually be the goal of it. That Christ had a goal in His humility. It was not aimless. It was to obey the Father for the reward of exaltation. And we should as well. Um, I think that's a good thing. Insofar as that reward is in Christ. Not for selfish gain and glory. And that's exactly what we see in Hebrews 12.2. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross. There was something that He was aiming after. You know what it was, beloved? It was you. You know what you should aim after? You should aim after Him. You should spend the rest of your lives glorying in Christ, living in light of the life, death, burial, resurrection, ascension of our Lord, and that second coming, running after Him, laying aside treasures, knowing that one day you will be exalted in Christ. That He is your greatest pleasure. Thus in Philippians chapter number 3, you can say, I count all the rest of that just dung. It's a heel. It's manure. It's nothing compared to Christ and the power of the resurrection. Those were true, that's where true humility is born. In pursuit of Christ. Thus let us pursue Him. So believers, live in light of those realities. And practically apply that in your lives. And number two, unbelievers, may this reality change your heart for Christ. 
For believers, this will be the truest form of worship on that great day with gladness and glory and joy forevermore as we bow and confess our Lord among the angels and the principalities and powers and every other human um, that is in our midst. But at the same time, for the unbeliever, that will be the gravest day of your eternity when he will break your knee, you will bow and confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Thus he calls every man everywhere to repent. And today I do as well. If you're outside of Christ, today is the day of salvation. Repent and believe in our Lord. Is He not glorious? Is He not worthy? Is He not exalted this Lord, ruling and reigning? Then He is worthy of your worship. Bow the knee today and confess, Romans chapter 10, that Jesus Christ is Lord. May you have a new heart and receive Him today. Um, as he instills in you the faith to believe. Believe on him, church. Believe on him and live after him all your days. Let us pray. Father, we love and thank you and praise you just for the glory of Christ again. Thank you for the reality that is ever before us. How wonderful it truly is, Lord. how much little attention we give to Christ in regard to our lives. Father, may you use the realities that are ever before us to continually preach the magnificence of Christ. He is truly beyond us, Father, yet at the same time, He is within our reach because of the work of the Son um, and only that reason. Father, we boast not in our work this morning. We boast not in our faith. We boast not, Father, in any of those things. We boast solely in Christ Jesus because he is worthy to be praised. Father, help us to live in light of those realities and use them to ever change us for his glory that it might work in us, Father, a more faithful life that might be a light to a lost and a dying world. And may you use... Vessels of earth, clay pots, to reveal and pour out the blessing of the gospel upon this world. Father, use us to your end and your end alone. Help us to quickly be forgotten that Christ may be remembered for all eternity in the hearts of those we influence. Use us, Father, and give us faith to believe that that's the reality because your son's at the right hand of God the Father, and that's why he was exalted.